has already been said tonight, we are grateful for the presence of everyone that's in attendance. I know many of you have sacrificed a lot of time and energy to be here tonight, getting off from work and just getting kids from school and just the pure sacrifice that you've made and the emphasis you've put on spiritual things to be here tonight. Before we begin, I just want to say again, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. I want to say I appreciate Adam for leading us in our song service, not only tonight, but also yesterday. Appreciate him and his family and our association through the years as well. And we are just delighted to be here with you. As you can see on the screen, a manifesto, it is a written statement declaring the publicly the intentions, motives, and the views of its users. Now, it's typical to see manifestos in art and literature and in politics. They normally don't represent the views of one individual. They often represent the views of a collective majority, a group of individuals. Another word for a manifesto would simply be a purpose statement, why an individual does a certain thing. Manifestos are not only given to say, hey, this is what we believe in, why? But more than that, they're a critique of the current way that things are being done. And then they're announcing at the very same time that a new era has dawned. And so when you read of manifestos, what they are, are often a violent critique of the present. And at the very same time, an inaugural and an inspiring declaration that something new has dawned and something better has arrived. Now, we may not appreciate this, but manifestos happen or are written all the time, and they shape the world in which we live for better or worse. The Humanist Manifesto has been authored and revised three times in this country in 1933, 1973, and the most recent volume in 2003. And what it emphasizes is the idea that human beings are products of nature itself, that we are the process of evolution that didn't have us in mind to begin with. The motto behind the Humanist Manifesto of 2003, here is their motto. You can read it on their website. Good without God. And I read something like that and I just say, good luck. Good luck at trying to be good and to do good without God. But the point is that everybody, whether they profess it or not, has one of these. That is a motto, a life statement, a tune that they march to in their daily life. Here's one from Nike, and this is what they say about their company. Nike, our purpose is to unite the world through sport, to create a healthy planet, active communities, and an equal playing field for all. Or this one from Apple, their company, it says, here's to the crazy ones, to the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the one who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can praise them, disagree with them, or quote them, disbelieve them, glorify them, or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. The people crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. And so when you see Apple products, they say, hey, this is who we're aiming at. We've seen things made at the status quo level, but we've come to introduce something different. And what I want to say tonight is for Christians, we have a manifesto of our own. A shortcut to this for people of God would be to say, our manifesto is the word of God. Matthew 4 and verse 4, we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And that would be true. But what would be equally true is there are occasions in scripture as you read through the Bible where we find in short chunks and bursts certain statements that really encapsulate all that we're supposed to be about. 
And I believe that's what we have in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. But before we launch into our lesson tonight, what I want you to do is turn your Bible to 1 Peter. And let's set the context, because as we dig into 1 Peter chapter 3, what I don't want us to walk away with is the Christian revised humanist manifesto. The do good, try harder, you can do it. Peter is saying something far more countercultural than that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, as he begins, he says he's writing to a group of people which Peter describes as strangers or pilgrims of individuals throughout Asia Minor. First Peter chapter one and verse one, Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. He says, I'm writing to you individuals because this world isn't your home. Look at first Peter chapter two and verse 11. He says, dearly beloved, I beg you, I urge you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust. Peter is writing to a group of people which he styles as pilgrims, sojourners, temporary dwellers on this earth. But not only that, the people that Peter is writing to, they're suffering greatly. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says that they're being tried under a fiery trial. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So here's what we have in the book of 1 Peter. You have Christians who this earth is not their home. And at the same time, while they're here, they're suffering and being persecuted. And then right in the middle of this book, Peter says, it really doesn't matter what's going on all around you. You are different. We have different marching orders. We live for Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, the one that would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him do good or pursue good and turn away from evil. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. What Peter does in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12 is really to reach back into the Old Testament. And he quotes from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. As David was writing those words when he was on the run from a man named Abimelech. But Peter borrows those words and he says, you may feel like you're on the run in this world. But remember, no matter what the world does around you, don't let them turn you into them. Instead, you live for Jesus Christ. Tonight, what I want to show us from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, are basically five things that Peter says about the way that we should live our lives, how it should impact us, and then how it will help us to impact those that live around us as we do our best to renew and revive our focus on Jesus Christ as our Lord. Let's begin. Number one, Peter says, I want you to appreciate the goal of life. Look at verse 10. He that would love life and see good days. That's what Peter says. This is the goal of the Christian life, or at least one of them. And those that are unfamiliar with this type of terminology in Scripture may assume that maybe Peter made a typo. Isn't the goal of the Christian life to live life and then enjoy eternity with God in heaven? And Peter would say to that, absolutely, amen. But what are you going to do in the meantime? God has some things for us to do right now. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 1 and verse 21? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But while Paul lived... He was going to live for Jesus Christ and he wasn't going to do it in a sour or discouraged way, even though he was in prison and persecuted and mistreated. He says, for me to live is Christ. And so as we live in the current, Peter says one of the goals of the Christian life is to love life and to see good days. And we don't have to be ashamed about that or apologize for it, because that's one of the worthy goals of living for Jesus Christ. That's in the here and in the now. There are blessings that await the righteous and the faithful in the days to come. But we don't have to hate our lives in the current times or in the temporary. In fact, if we're going to be Jesus' disciples, we can't. In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life 
and that they might have it in abundance. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come to enhance your life, not only in eternity, which is definitely true, but in the here and now. We should love our lives because Acts 17, 25 says that Jesus is the one who has furnished us with life and has given it to us. And whether or not the world knows it, this is really what everybody in the world is seeking. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 2 and verse 13 concerning God's people then, but it's true about all of humanity, that people have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. They were dying of thirst, but they wouldn't go to the living fountain of water. And most people in the world want to love life and see good days. And we are wired that way. We're supposed to desire those things. But the problem with most people in the world is they don't know where to seek it. And Peter says it's only going to be found in living for Jesus and doing things in the right way. We should love life and see good days because God is the giver of every good gift. James 1 and verse 17 says every good and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. We should love life and see good days because godliness has the profit or the promise for the life that now is and the life which is to come. First Timothy four and verse eight. God has given us all things right now for us to live with and to enjoy. First Timothy six and verse 17. And so Peter's admonition for the one that would love life and see good days. His immediate readers would know that what Peter does not mean is a life of ease and comfort and no struggle, but instead sustainable joy, even in the midst thereof. You remember Jesus' words to his disciples right before he went to the cross in John 16 and verse 33. I've spoken these words to you that in me you might have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but you can be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. You know, most people in the world don't know that this is a part of the Christian manifesto. One of our purpose statements for why we live the way we do and why we do the things we do. Furthermore, most Christians don't realize that this is a part of the Christian life and what we do and why we do the things that we do. People in the world will say, you stay away from those religious people because you know what they're going to do. They're going to squelch out and squeeze out every ounce of happiness and joy and liberty with their Bible and their thou shall not and their warnings of damnations and their threats. If you really want to love life and see good days, you run as fast and as far as you can in the opposite direction. But don't you see what Peter's saying? Not only should we joyfully run into the presence of God, but we can't have joy any other way. Paul said rejoice in the Lord because that's the only place that joy really can be found. Nehemiah 8 and verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength because that's where joy resides. And so Peter says, do you really want to love life? Do you want to see good days? Don't let the persecution of the Romans squeeze this out of you. Don't turn sour toward the Christian life. Live the way that God has always designed for you to live And go in that direction, because that's where the real joy is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and freedom. And with that freedom comes joy. If somebody's not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you you don't know about this. You can have it. God would desire you to have it. But the only way to truly love life and see good days is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's in doing that, that you can be forgiven of everything that haunts you and liberate it from everything that's ever hurt you. Paul says that in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's a here and now thing with ramifications for eternity. Yes, but right now, Christians can love life and see good days. 
It was 1883 when Emma Lazarus wrote this poem, The New Colossus, and she wrote it in order to raise money for the pedestal that sits at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. And this is the last part of it. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift up my lamp beside the golden door. The point is, people have risked their lives, blood, sweat, and tears. To get to this country with all of her imperfections, people believe in their hearts that if I could just get there, life will be better for me. There's freedom and there's bliss and there's a burden free life to a certain extent that awaits me if I could just get there. But Peter's saying for Christians, there's something far better, far more glorious. If you get to Jesus Christ, you will love life and see good days in a way that this world can never promise. In a way that this world can never really deliver because you're living in light of Jesus Christ and who he is. Do you want to love your life? Do you want to enjoy it? Well, that's the goal for the Christian. That's what the Christian ultimately is chasing after and seeking. And Peter would say, guess what? That's a worthy goal. Now, here's how you get there. Number two, Peter says, in order to love life and see good days, get a hold of your tongue. In verse 10, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no deceit. Would you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1? It's in that verse that Peter says we should have already given some of this up. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, put aside all malice and evil speaking. Clean up your speech. But notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, right before Peter gets to this statement, he's encouraged Christians in verse 8 to love each other. And then in verse 9, he says, you don't return a cursing when others curse you, but instead, 1 Peter 3 and verse 9, you bless them. And that's especially hard when you're being persecuted and mistreated. And so in verse 10, Peter says, make sure that you have your speech under control. Refrain your tongue from evil and your lips that they speak no deceit. This is in step with Jesus and who he was and who he is. Our manifesto, our marching orders, our rule of life is modeled after the one who was persecuted, beaten, mistreated, and he never said a word. Mark 15 and verse 10, among the other things that was impressive about Jesus, a man under that strain and that type of difficulty, Pilate marveled at his silence. Though they heaped accusations against him, he never said one word in response. It was in accordance with prophecy. Isaiah 53 and verse 7 says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 in verse 9 says there would be no deceit to come out of his mouth. And Peter quotes those words verbatim in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following. Hereunto Christ has suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no evil and there was no deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He reviled not again when he suffered. He threatened not, but committed himself to the one who judges righteously, which is his father in heaven. And we're to do the very same thing. If we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be God's people in a world where people say whatever comes to mind first, whatever they want, we've got to be people that get a hold of our tongue. We've got to be people that can control our speech. You want to love life and see good days. It starts with the way that we use our speech. You ever say this or heard someone say this? It was just out of my mouth before I could do anything about it. You know, it just came up here and it just it just came out. There was nothing I could do about it. Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe sometimes you go walking, maybe you have a pet and you'll see these signs up. They'll have signs that say, don't walk your dogs on this lawn. Or if you have a pet, make sure to clean up after your pets. Why aren't they writing the signs to the dogs? After all, they're the ones doing the business, right? You know why. Because you're in control of the dog. 
Listen, you're in control of the tongue. The tongue doesn't wag you. The tongue doesn't move us about. It's not the case that, well, I just can't help it. Things just come to mind and they just come out. There's absolutely nothing that I can do about it. In fact, the Bible says there is. And that is we can rein it in. We can control it. And if we're going to be God's people, we must. You could pause at this point in the sermon and insert the entirety of the book of James or many of the Proverbs which say our speech says a great deal about our spirituality. James challenges us in James 1.26. If any among you seems to be religious, what does that mean, James? Maybe he's a good giver and maybe he has great Bible knowledge and maybe she's a servant and a missionary. But if any among you seems to be religious, gives off the appearance that he or she marches by the Christian manifesto of righteousness, if any among you seems to be religious and doesn't control his own tongue. This man deceives his own heart, and his religion is worthless. James says everything you need to know about a man or a woman in Christ can be ultimately summed up by the way that they use their speech. I know James says in James 3, 7 and 8 that the tongue is sometimes like a wild animal. He says we control all of the others, but this pink piece of flesh in our mouths is sometimes the hardest animal in the world to control, but we have to do it. It takes effort. And it's not just about making sure that we don't say the filth, but it's also by making sure that our speech is fine-tuned by the grace of God and that we say the right things in the right ways. The proverbial writer says in Proverbs 10 and verse 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but the one that refrains his speech is wise. He that keeps his mouth keeps his life, but he that opens wide his lips will have destruction. Proverbs 13 and verse 3. As apples of gold and pictures of silver, so is a word that's fitly spoken. Proverbs 25 and verse 11. Our speech needs to be reined in as the people of God if we would love life and if we would see good days. Notice Peter's words again in verse 10. They're pretty vague. Let him refrain his tongue from deceit. Probably in this context means don't say or do anything ungodly. Let him do the right thing with his speech and his lips that they speak no God. But what does that mean? He doesn't give us a list. And that's great because the openness in which Peter makes this statement suggests we got a lot of work to do in the areas in which we use our speech. God's people need to be those that speak well, that speak right, that speak pure. You know, in this world in which you can send a text at a moment's notice, which you can never get back or post anything on social media and say anything and sometimes we, we, we act like children with this. You know, we may think to ourselves, well, they said it first and he started with me. There's always been this slogan that's been passed down through the centuries that if a child says something that they shouldn't, they should have their mouths washed out with soap. I don't know about you, but I know some adults who need to be in the same line. I remember one night I was taking my kids to Dick's Sporting Goods to get my son some football cleats. And when we got there, we were walking into the parking lot and there was this man. He was getting a bike or trying to put a new bike that he had just bought in the back of his truck. And he must have dropped it. He must have cursed. I didn't hear what he said, but he immediately began to apologize. He said, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said those words. I said things your children shouldn't hear. And while I appreciated his sensitivity and even his sincerity, Peter is not saying that there are ungodly words that are unsuitable for the children, but those that are fit and useful for those 18 and older. He's saying if you're going to be God's person, you've got to make sure that your speech is pure and wholesome at all times. Here's some of the ways that that's done. We should put away dishonest speech. Ephesians 4 and verse 25 talks about this idea that we shouldn't lie to one another because we're members one of another. Colossians 3 and verse 9, lie not one to another, saying you've put off the old person with his deeds. We should remove slander and gossip from our speech. 
In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 16, Moses said, you will not go up and down as a talebearer among the people of God. Don't slander people. Don't gossip. That's easy to do. And it's a relatively small thing when I do it about you, but it's a rather large thing when you do it about me. We should make sure that our speech is kind. The worthy woman in Proverbs 31 and verse 26, among all the other things that she does that seem sometimes to be too realistic, too high of a bar for anybody to attain to. Proverbs 31, 26 says in her tongue is the law of kindness. And that's why she's a worthy woman. We shouldn't say things that are merely unhelpful. Ephesians 4, 29. And then, of course, disgraceful speech should never be among those that are people of God. Let us be those that march to the beat of a different drum in a world where people say I can cut you down faster than you can cut me. I can say meaner things than you. I can be harsher and more critical and judgmental than you are. Let us be those individuals like Peter says, may your tongue speak no deceit. May there be no guile on your tongue, but instead follow after the one who could have done all of those things, but refused because you're God's people. Now, here's number three. Peter says, go away from evil and do good. This seems simple, elementary, but it's important. Peter says, let him go away, refrain from evil. The old King James is shoot evil and do good. But it's so important that it's mentioned repeatedly throughout the New Testament. This idea that you just do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. In view of all that the New Testament says, you could sum up the Christian life post-baptism with just this simple phrase. Do good and don't do bad. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 21 says, prove all things and hold firm and fast to that which is good. Romans 12 and verse 9 says, be repulsed by that which is evil, abhor that which is evil, but cleave to that which is good. Amos 5 and verse 15 says, hate the evil and love the good. You would think that this would be natural or intuitive for people of God. But down through the centuries, Christians have needed to be reminded that we need to make sure to turn away from the evil and be people that constantly and repeatedly pursue the good. This is what God wants for his people. Turn away from that which will tear you down and destroy. Go in the opposite direction of evil. And instead you do good. I know we're surrounded by it. I know it's ever about us. But God wants us to run in and with the the direction of righteousness. Imagine the people that Peter's writing to coming out of their pagan background. Coming out of their old lifestyle. And just because you're baptized, you're declaring in that moment, I'm through with sin. But sin isn't through with me. And so there's a constant battle in warfare to continue to be God's person and do the right things and make the right choices. And Peter says, every day that you get up, you choose righteousness first. You choose righteousness often and you refrain from doing the evil. There's this game that cars sometimes play in movies. It's called chicken. Maybe you've heard of it. Two cars. I've seen it here in Midland, Texas. They didn't know they were playing it, but they were. They have been. The two cars come at each other full speed, full speed. And the desire, the goal of this game is to see one of us is either going to turn away or we're going to have a head on collision and both of us will die and our cars will be totaled. But the goal is to see whichever car turns first is supposedly the coward, the chicken, the one that was afraid of the collision. And Peter is saying to Christians, as you find yourself sometimes on a head to head course collision with evil, you always turn and bend away from evil. You always be the first one to turn away from it because you won't survive the collision. Your heart can't take the impact. And when you do so, you're not a coward. You're a Christian. You always apologize first and go across the fence. You always turn it off or turn the other way. Look away. You don't get any extra points for testing your courage by saying, I'm going to see how much of ungodliness I can withstand. Peter says you refrain from evil. You turn away from it. And instead, 
you choose to do the good. Let them refrain from evil and then do good. We may be better at refraining from evil than doing good, but Peter says you and I need to be doing both. It's really easy to make a long list of all of the things that we don't do. But that's not what the verse calls for. I admit that the refraining from evil is good in and of itself, but God wants more from us than a list of all of the thou shall nots that we don't do. We must actively be engaged in doing what's right. You couldn't win a game. I know people say defense wins championships, but eventually you have to score some points. Notice how many times in 1 Peter this idea of do good just continues to come up. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and notice verse 14. He's writing about government officials, and he says that it's their responsibility to look to those. They're for the praise of those, notice this, that do well, 1 Peter 2, 14. That's what the government's for, for those that are doing well. Would that be us? This is Peter's synecdoche for Christians. One of the ways he refers to them is those that do well. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6. He's talking about wives and their response to their, their husbands that may not obey the word, whether unfaithful Christians or those who never have. If you walk in step with Sarah, he says, if you be not afraid with any amazement and if you do what's good. He says the same thing in chapter three and verse 13. And then in chapter four and verse 19, he says, you're those that commit your soul to a faithful creator as those that are doing good. That's who we have to be. The do gooders in the world. Galatians 6 and verse 10 says, as you therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. We don't wait for people to behave well enough for us to do good to them. We just do good for no other reason other than we're followers of Jesus Christ. The Bible says about our God in Psalm 145 and verse 9 that he does good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Throughout Jesus's life in Acts 10 and verse 38, Peter summed up his life this way. He was the one who went about doing good. As the Christians, those that are modeling our lives after Jesus, we need to be known as the do-gooders. That phrase, goody two-shoes, it comes from a novel that was written by a man named John Newberry in 1765 in London, and it's become a joke. It really was written about a young girl who had one shoe. Eventually, she gets two shoes, and she overcame a lot in life, but we've turned that phrase on his head, and now it's used for people that we seem to think are overachievers. It's often used to mock people. If you receive too much change at the store and you give it back, you goody two-shoes. If you always come to work on time and try to do the right thing, then somebody may say, You're just a goody two-shoes. But Peter is saying, if anybody should be known for doing good, this doesn't mean to be snobby or to be self-righteous or pharisaical. But we're to be the people in all the world that people can look to and say, if we know anything about those people, members of the churches of Christ, everywhere you see them, you know what you'll find them doing. You'll find them doing good. Why is that the case? It's their manifesto. Like Apple wants to make the shocking and expensive and good products that nobody else will make. Nobody in the world should outdo us in doing good because that's who we are. The world may know us for everything we're against, but they need to equally know us. And I would argue even more so for all of the things that we're for. And one of those things is we're going to do good and we're going to do it indiscriminately to everybody we come into contact with because we're following after the pattern of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Appreciate Peter's words. Let them turn away from evil and actually do the good. Too many times in my life, I've thought about doing a good deed. I said, you know what? I should have called her. And I was going to write him a card. But notice, the Bible never pronounces a blessing on the mentors. The Bible pronounces the blessing on those that actually execute the good. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. James 1, 22 and 23. 
halfway done, almost done deeds are too great of a burden to bear. And though we can't do all of the good, we can do some of it. And we need to make sure as we see opportunities, we don't postpone our opportunity to do so, but we just actively launch out and do it. Sometimes we think, well, that's such an obvious thing. Surely somebody else is going to attend to it. But what often happens is what everybody knows needs to be done is not done at all. And so may we be the first ones to do it. May we be those that turn away from evil and then actively find the good and be ever practicing it. Peter says, Christians in a world where evil has just become the norm in the Roman Empire, you be those that are known for turning away from that and you run in the direction of righteousness. And when you do, you are running in the same direction of your Lord and into his marvelous light, even in the here and now. Here's number four. Peter says, seek peace. The righteous person must seek peace and then pursue it. This is important for Peter and for us tonight to seek peace. That is to be on good terms. The only way this can be done initially is to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not telling you tonight that if somebody is not a Christian, that they don't have good days or even good seasons of life. But what I am suggesting is to the person who's outside of Christ, there will always be unfulfilled desires, a relationship that doesn't feel like it is properly mended, duties that have not been done. And most of all, with the one that matters the most, seeking peace begins by making peace with God through obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what Peter or what Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross, and we enjoy that peace and reconciliation when we turn from sin and are immersed in Jesus and we have our sins washed away. To remain in hostility with God and on good terms with everybody else is to be in a deadly predicament. But those of us who have made peace with God, there's more to it than that. Our peace in this world, to the best of our ability, must be vertical and horizontal. It's not enough to say, well, I'm on good terms with God, and therefore I can do whatever else I want while I live on this time side of life. Christians, the Christian manifesto says, seek peace. Now, we won't always have it. Everybody in this world is not for it. But may it never be our fault. You know, sometimes we're persecuted. And sometimes people malign us and misrepresent us for being people of God. But then sometimes... It's rightfully deserved because we're just jerks for Jesus' sake. Sometimes we're not the peacemakers that we should be, and it causes problems. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 says, Pursue peace and holiness with all, without which no man will see the Lord. Romans 12 and verse 18, Paul says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. What does that mean? That means that sometimes it won't depend on you. You've done all that you can and peace can't be had. But may it never be the case that there's a rupture in a relationship because of me as God's person. And I haven't done all that I can to make it right. This word peace actually just carries this idea of harmony. It just means things that go together and get along. Here's the question. Do you have harmony tonight in relationships with people? Do your relationships sing? Do people like being around you? Are you a person of harmony? Christians shouldn't be the person that when we walk into the lunchroom, everybody else just walks out because, oh, here he goes again. You shouldn't be the person in your family that when everybody sees your headlights come up at home, they start scrambling because they say, we don't know what it's going to be today. We don't know who he's going to jump on top of today. We don't know what we could have done wrong. Surely there'll be some nitpicking. Surely there'll be some fault finding. It shouldn't be the case that when I raise my hand in the Bible class or maybe when somebody sees me coming their way, they say, well, what crumb of gossip is he or she going to bring today? Seek peace 
and pursue it. David said in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will chase me down or follow me all the days of my life. And we must also be running in the direction all of our lives with peace for all men. As best we can, let us be individuals that seek peace with our fellow men as we try to teach them the gospel, as we try to reach out to those that may be lost and on the outside of Jesus Christ and bring them into the fold. As we live and dwell with one another as brethren, may we do all that we can to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. God's kingdom is to be one of harmonious peace where all of the noise in the world is raging about us. But there's a sort of peace and comfort that we find when we come among the people of God. Peter wants these individuals to know that they can have peace and they can have it in the here and now. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus talks about all of the blessings that are going to be belong to his people after this life concludes. But then he adds, you'll have a hundredfold not only then, but in this life and the world to come. Mark 10, 29 and 30. And one of the things that Jesus delivers to his people is ultimately peace. Are you a peacemaker? Are you someone who goes out of your way to make peace? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called the children of God. Matthew 5 and verse 9. That's who we must be known as. That's who we have to be because we live in a world that's always swirling with conflict. Here's the fifth one. Peter says, remember that God is watching. In the end, this is the motivation for all that Peter has said. At this point in the letter, Peter is done giving out duties on what Christians need to do. But now he's talking about what Christians must remember. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. This brings into force everything that Peter has said thus far and makes sense of all of the statements made in verses 10 and verse 11. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. That is, God is the one that's watching. We're not merely to be those that behave good because Christianity is about behavioral modification. Who can get the most stickers in the good column? God's watching. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. His eyes run to and fro throughout the earth. Second Chronicles 16 and verse nine. God is watching us, Peter is saying. And that needs to make a difference as we mend our conduct and as we live to please him. God cares about what we do. His eyes are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. No wonder, Peter says in verse 10, don't let filthy things come out of your mouth because there's going to come an occasion when you need to talk to God. And you know that God won't hear you if your speech has been soiled in the past. James says in James 3, 9 and 10, can we bless God with the same tongue that we curse men that are made in the similitude of God and the same image of God? Peter is saying, watch your words because God's listening. In this anthropomorphic language that Peter uses, notice the text. He mentions God's face and God's ears and God's eyes. Peter is drawn home this one point. God is closer than you think or than you can ever imagine. And if you're a Christian, that should bring great comfort. Doesn't matter what everybody else does. God sees me and God knows the truth. But it's also a great corrective and a challenging thought that the eyes of the only one who really matters, he knows me through and through. He knows what I say. He knows the opportunities missed. He knows the evil done in secret as well as the good. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayers. Peter is saying, Christians, God sees you. God's watching you. 
This doesn't make God a spy. This makes him a sensitive and loving heavenly father who wants us to do the right thing, who believes that we can, who's equipped us to get it done. And he's saying, you make sure to do what's right, because the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. For Christians being persecuted in the first century, what this meant for them was God's going to take care of your enemies. That's why you don't have to return evil for evil. First Peter three and verse nine. That's why you can forcefully and faithfully do good because God's going to deal with the evil. Paul would say in Romans 8 and verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? But the reverse is also true. If God be against us, it doesn't matter who's for us. And we know that pride and arrogance and the evil way he hates Proverbs 8 and verse 13. And so do good. Do the right thing because the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. As we try to withstand evil in the world in which we live. The goal is to be sure that they don't make us like them, but that we do everything we can as we're being made and molded into the image of Jesus Christ, that we can help other individuals to do the same. Second Corinthians three and verse 18 says we're all being changed every day. And he says that the glory of the Lord is changing us more, hopefully, into the likeness and into the image of Jesus Christ. But the reality is that every one of us is being changed every day in small ways that will make an eternal difference. We're either becoming more and more like Jesus or less and less like him. And you know your own heart tonight, whether that's true about the right direction or the wrong one. Maybe you can say, I used to be so much closer. We used to walk hand in hand. I was pleasing to him, but I've drifted and I need to do better. Or I remember when I was far away and now I'm close and his admonition to you would be, I see you, I hear you, and I'm watching you. You continue to press on and do what's right. Christians live the way that we do because we're pilgrims. This world's not our home. And whether under fiery trial or favorable circumstances, we march to the beat of a different drum, a drum that ultimately can change the world. But it never will until they first see that it has changed ours. They won't believe us if we just merely profess the right doctrines, but we live the same old ways and we say we know all of the right answers. Come and walk with us and be with us. The greatest hermeneutic that the first century Christians had was, yes, their doctrine. Yes, the empty tomb but also the reformation of their lives. And Peter writes to Christians in Asia Minor that are really citizens of heaven. And he says, those that would love life and see good days and one day see one great and good eternal day, refrain your tongues from evil. Let your lips speak no deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it first with God and then with humanity. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and he holds the real scoreboard. He holds the book of life and he knows who you are. Do you have peace tonight? There are really three levels of peace as we get ready to extend heaven's invitation that God wants everyone in the world to have. And the way that we receive them is relatively simple. The first question is for you and for me, do I have peace with God? Peace with God comes, as we mentioned already, by obeying the gospel, turning from, Jesus, turning from sin to Jesus Christ, confessing him as Lord and being immersed to have our sins washed away. That is appealing to God, calling on his name with a good conscience and having our sins washed away. That'll give you peace with God, but that's great, but you need more. The second thing is you need to have peace with yourself. Peace with myself means that I am living for Jesus. I'm walking in consistency with what I know and what I believe from Scripture. Some people believe the right things, but they live halfway for God, halfway for the world, and they can't really have peace. 
or they believe these doctrines and they walk in the light, but they're not really sure that God loves them as much as he says he does. You got to have peace with yourself. Walk in the light. Trust that his promises are true and enjoy peace within. And then the third and final level of peace is to the best of our ability to have peace one with another. And that happens as we enjoy the fellowship and camaraderie of those in Christ and love our neighbors as ourselves as we meet every individual in the world with one or two opportunities. Either they're already a brother or sister in Christ or their potential. And maybe tonight you need one of those levels of peace. We stand ready to assist and to help you to make peace with God, to pray for you as you seek to have peace with yourself or maybe to have peace with someone else. But let us remember that Christians, we have a rule of life. We walk in the way that God wants us to. And ultimately, we'll walk with him in eternity. If you need to respond, Adam's going to lead us in this song. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.